Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And today we are going to delve deep on an area which um, in some parts of the media is underexplored, but it is fascinating on so many different levels. And that is how much access we should have to government behind the scenes, how we get it, what the constraints are, whether the constraints are valid, whether the access is valid. We've had the raging row recently about WhatsApp uh, between ministers and whether the government should be obliged to make those available to the COVID inquiry. But there have been equivalent controversies, maybe not quite so noisy, ever since the passing of the Freedom of Information Act. And it raises so many fascinating questions. Now, the person who probably is the world expert on that Freedom of Information Act is uh, Martin Rosenbaum, who's just written a book called The Freedom of Information, a practical guidebook. It's, it is a practical guidebook if you want to access information. This is the book. But it's much more than that. It is a vivid evocation of this whole period and the ambiguities around it and the controversies and so on. And I'm thrilled to have this conversation with Martin because I've worked with him for many years. If you, and I know many of you have, listened to various political series on Radio 4, Martin was almost certainly the editor. Uh, we worked together for many years at the BBC. Um, and Martin, I think it's the first time I'm interviewing you. And I'm thrilled. Yeah, I think that's right, Steve, yes. <laughs> so, uh, Good to have the tables turned like this for once. Yes, yeah, well, um, I, I, absolutely. Uh, so thanks for joining us. And um, I want to go into all kinds of themes around fe freedom of information and your book. Could I give, get your take on that? It's a slightly different thing, but not, not wholly. This row that has been going on, it's been drowned out by more Boris Johnson controversy since. But that row about WhatsApps uh, that should be given to the COVID inquiry, from your many years, I should add, I mean, Martin did all the political programmes, but he was the BBC's freedom of information guru. And when the BBC wanted access via freedom of information, Martin was the person who usually undertook it. Um, so with all that experience, what was your instinctive reaction to the WhatsApp row? Was the COVID inquiry right to ask for almost an indiscriminate range of ministerial WhatsApps? Or, or, or was it your sense from delving deep in this area that that was a bit too much? Well, I suspect from what we know that actually the inquiry was right to ask for all the information that it's asked for. Uh, it's certainly possible that if there's information there which the inquiry wants to look at that should not be published, say for reasons of national security, uh, that can be done when evidence is later published. That is certainly what has happened in previous inquiries, that some information can be held back from publication. So I don't think that argument against giving them the material actually holds water. And more likely, I think it's really about the instinctive secrecy of the Cabinet Office, which is uh, really to try and cut down on the sort of information that it hands out to people. And I have to say the Hallett inquiry, the COVID inquiry, it's got much greater 
I think, both legal and moral rights to information than people have under the FOI Act. Yeah, this is yeah. obviously very different. Um, yeah. But of course, the the debate is similar and familiar to you, isn't it? Sure. What, yeah, what, ab- is, what is legitimate secrecy? What is holding information unnecessarily to the wider public? That, that yeah. has been the essence yeah. of the debate that you've been navigating for years. Uh, Absolutely. And I think the other thing that is very familiar to me is this instinctive secrecy of the Cabinet Office, which I think right at the heart of government has been probably the most obstructive government department in terms of FOI, uh, holding back sometimes information that other departments would like to release. And currently for the Information Commissioner's Office, 12% of their current active caseload is actually complaints about the Cabinet Office. So I think there's a particular issue about the secretiveness of the Cabinet Office. Yeah, which we'll come to and and your experience of that secretiveness. But let's go back to the origins of the Freedom of Information Act, because this is so interesting. Now, (laughs) I laughed out loud at the opening sentence of your book, where you say, according to Tony Blair, this book should probably be called How to Hit People on the Head with a mallet. Uh, Because as you go on to write, uh, when Blair looked back, one of his two biggest regrets was freedom of information, uh, legislating for freedom of information. The other you mentioned was fox hunting. We won't go into that one, but we will go into this. From the beginning, uh, he was wary, wasn't he? I think not quite from the beginning, but very soon. It's actually quite interesting. Very soon after he was elected in 1997, he gave the job of FOI minister to David Clark, um, who was one of these ministers who'd been in the shadow cabinet. uh, And Blair was basically obliged to give him a job, although he was never a Blairite and never really liked him. And he was soon to be got rid of, which Clark knew, and that affected how Clark did the job. But I think really initially, Clark says Blair when he appointed him the job, was enthusiastic about FOI. But I think very soon Blair came to see actually the ways in which it would cause him problems, not just FOI, but transparency in general. And he very quickly shifted to being really very doubtful about it. It is an interesting example of how, in opposition, these propositions, A, seem quite attractive, when you're facing a government trying to hide things, and B, for a Labour opposition, it can be part of a claim that you're going to be radical because it doesn't cost money. It was, and Blair, as you will know better than anyone, uh, highlighted it a lot in opposition as an example of how a Labour government was going to modernise government. Um, It was a great weapon in opposition, but then in power, boy, did he turn. Absolutely. And I think it's absolutely right to say at the time Blair was coming in 1997, it was part of his constitutional reform agenda. Yeah. Um, You know, we saw devolution, the Human Rights Act, all those other things, which, as you say, were ways in which Labour could um, appear to transform or in reality actually transform the country without having to spend more money on public services. And FOI was part of that. Uh, and then, what you know, once you're in government, it's true, these things inevitably look different to you. But I think particularly what happened with Blair was um, not that long after he, let, he was in power, a few months later, we had the Ecclestone affair, 
which was a huge shock to him. And when he was really challenged on his personal integrity. This was when, just a reminder of one, he, uh, Eccleston had been a sponsor uh, to the Labour Party. Eccleston then asked him, so it is alleged, to, uh, what was it, advertising? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah exactly. So um, Eccleston, it turned out, had given a million pounds to the Labour Party. He was the um, you know extremely wealthy boss of Formula One. Uh, he didn't want Formula One to be covered by the same ban on tobacco advertising that was going to be introduced for other sports, and um, Formula One was exempted from that. And so the issue was, well, had Ecclestone's donation helped to achieve that policy exception? Um, and Blair did a very famous interview on the BBC where he said, I'm a pretty straight kind of guy in response to these allegations. Uh, and it was, I think, the time, and this is what in his memoirs, actually, in Blair's memoirs, this really comes across. He realised um, Labour was going to have its own sleaze scandals in the same way that he'd spent years and years attacking the Tories over sleaze in opposition. He now realised Labour was inevitably going to have its own sleaze scandals. And that, I think, was actually pretty big in making him think, well, maybe all this transparency about political donations, and that's separate from FOI, incidentally, yeah. it's not the same law, but yeah. the same principle, yeah. um, that these things can come back to bite you. And that's part of what happened, I think, that, that shifted his mind on FOI. It, it was, I, I remember going to interview David Clark about the bill he was responsible for, the Freedom of Information Bill. He was in the Cabinet Office. He already looked haunted and <laughs> unclear what Tony Blair wanted. And if you remember at the time, uh, Peter Mandelson was a cabinet office minister and the corridors to David Clark's office were uh, sort of a winding and there were entrances from obscure corridors. And I was interviewed with David Clark and halfway through we looked up and Peter Mandelson was there as if from nowhere. And he almost leapt out of his seat in uh, horror. And I could tell this was a fearful minister who knew that Blair didn't really want him in the cabinet. Um, and, and that kind of was the background to the authorship of this historic act, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely. I think it's all completely right. And I think it's very interesting, the approach that David Clark took in those circumstances, which is that he knew he didn't really have long in government. And he wanted to really create his legacy, which was to have a maximalist FOI Act to do something that he felt he could really look back on as an achievement would be seen as a big and ambitious uh, piece of legislation. Uh, you know, he wasn't going to try and keep his head down in order to stay on for longer. He knew he wouldn't last long. Let's do something that he thought of as significant. The legislation he produced went much further than Blair, various other cabinet ministers like Straw, Jack Straw, wanted to go in terms of FOI. And uh, after David Clark left the government about a year later, was sacked, the legislation became much weaker than Clark's original proposals. But I would say probably stronger than it would have been if Clark hadn't been there to make his original proposals in the first place. Yeah, so in that sense, he had a lasting impact. I want to ask how you got involved via the BBC, but beforehand, inevitably, there are some fascinating moments where the course of history has been changed by this. And I guess, unless you tell me otherwise, the most prominent is the MP's expenses. No, I think that's absolutely right. And although... In the end, the information that was uh, the Telegraph printed actually came from a leak. 
rather than an FOI request. It had only been collected together in the first place uh, in response to FOI requests. The whole business of MPs' expenses would never have happened, absolutely, without FOI. And that's had massive implications, obviously, for the level of trust in government, the general impression of politics and politicians and how trustworthy they are amongst the general public. Uh, You know, I mean, possibly there are some people who might say, perhaps not implausibly, years later, Brexit would never have happened if it hadn't been for the scandal over MPs' expenses. Um, Certainly, I think the whole of our politics since then has, in a way, been coloured by the lasting memories of that scandal. So it was massively important. Um, And to pick up on one other point you hinted at, Steve, there, I think it's interesting how things could have gone very differently because initial plans for the legislation did not cover Parliament at all, Um, and in which case MPs' expenses would never have been requested under FOI. And it was almost a a kind of... um, there was a committee report which said, why isn't Parliament to be covered? Parliament was added into it too. I think nobody then really realised the significance of what was going to happen as a result. Could very easily have been very different. It, 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 and, and what consequences? Um, do you Absolutely. have any sympathy? See, this is a really interesting example of people, i.e. in this case MPs, behaving in a certain way in the pre-FOI era. Uh, where they were told it wasn't actually expenses, was it? That you, you sort of made claims, and um, it was in effect expenses. Um, but they were told, as you know, you know, we, you won't get a pay rise, but put in expenses. Then suddenly, freedom of information becomes legislation, and it all looks terrible. Uh, do you have any sympathy that because they were doing it before that era, where it was all closed, and it was a world in which certain things went ahead without anyone really thinking very much about it? Or do you think, wow, this is a vivid example of the cleansing impact of this vital piece of legislation? So funny enough, I actually think both of those things. Um, I think I do have some sympathy for some of the MPs who were caught up in it. Uh, I remember the one particular Tory MP who featured on the front page of the Sunday Telegraph because she spent five pounds on dog food, which had got included in a receipt that she submitted to the parliamentary authorities. Um, you know, probably inadvertent, minor error. There's no reason to be on the front page of a newspaper because of that. Um, at the other end, we had people who really were guilty of criminality, falsifying records, uh, lying about things. And it's absolutely right that those people should be exposed and public money protected. So I think really what you had, you had a vast range, actually, of MPs from ones who were doing something really seriously bad to others who, if they'd been guilty of any infractions at all, were very minor and not very serious, and then a lot in the middle. Um, But it all became part of one particular sort of impression of MPs as a whole. So I think there were some who were a bit unlucky to be caught up on it, but others were got banged to rights, basically. Now, you yourself spent 
uh, I think it was 16 years, wasn't it, at the BBC navigating the opportunities and the obstacles uh, in relation to the Freedom of Information Act. Just generally, before we come on to some of the specific examples of your experience and the lessons learned and what we should all learn from your lessons. Um, I mean, the BBC itself, we've both worked in it for many decades, is quite a secretive organisation. So was it quite odd working for a relatively secretive organisation, seeking information from what you've already described as a highly secretive cabinet office and other departments? Um, <laughs> so it's certainly true. The BBC received FOI requests yeah. as well as having them Did out. you handle those as well? No, I had nothing to do with the incoming requests. That was dealt with by... Uh, people working for the BBC corporately, nothing to do with the journalists who were sending out. Right. FOI requests, kept very, very separate. Uh, but the BBC did receive incoming requests. And it's certainly true that some of the people who made those requests and didn't get what they wanted would describe the BBC as secretive. Uh, I mean, it also has to be said that sometimes information came out, has, uh, it has come out in response to those, which has been very embarrassing for the BBC. I mean, notably, um, fairly recently, over the Martin Bashir, Princess Diana interview where FOI played a role in exposing what had truly gone on there. And that's been extremely embarrassing for BBC people who were involved at the time. So uh, certainly all, all, all that is true. However, I don't think any of that affected me. Uh, my point of view was my job was as a journalist to put in FOI requests, to make programs, to get stories, all the rest of it. and anything to do with how the BBC dealt with FOI corporately or in management terms, nothing to do with that. I just do my job. Yeah. And you give uh, many examples of your experiences in this area. I think the first one you give was, uh, it's appropriate, we're, we're talking uh, soon after the Boris Johnson honours list, where you were bewildered by an honour someone had received. And you got um, information via FOI, uh, which took you into interesting terrain. Yeah, I, it was an interesting one. Really, what this showed was that somebody who'd been given an OBE, whose company had featured on the front page of the Times for uh, overcharging the NHS for medicines, um, that um, two or three years later, this person had been given the OBE. And um, so this was obviously a very puzzling thing, why has this person got the OBE? It turned out, as a result of my FOI request, that when he'd been considered for this honour, the people who were looking into his background, checking out if he really should get it, hadn't even come across this front page story on the Times about him uh, until it was too late, they said, to stop the honour. So they said, well, we now have to have a lessons learned process to uh, improve our vetting of nominees for honours to ensure this kind of thing doesn't happen again, which is pretty much tantamount to admitting, well, he shouldn't have been given the OBE in the first place, and they need to improve their procedures in order to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And that flaw, really, in the honours process would never have been exposed without FOI. There's no other way that that could have come out. So just out of interest, if you were doing this now at the BBC or anywhere else, or maybe you are, because I know you're keeping incredibly busy uh, with, with all these things, um, some people I hear on the radio or on read on Twitter are saying, 
what the hell is that person doing in Johnson's resignation honours list? I mean, I'm not the famous ones, but so, some of the yeah. more obscure ones. Is there a route that they can find out more through FOI? Possibly. So it depends. Um, I mean, in this particular case, of the OBE I was talking about, the information request that I put in was turned down by the cabinet. Ah, right. And then... The, the information commissioner ruled in my favour, but then the cabinet office appealed to a tribunal and then the tribunal ruled in my favour. So in other words, uh, it wasn't easy. It took a long time, two years and a lot of arguing. And I'm sure that in terms of the Johnson resignation list, absolutely the same would be the case, if not much more so, because it's you know more politically significant, potentially embarrassing than the kind of case I was involved in. So it would be resisted all the way by the cabinet office, and you've got to be prepared to take that on and fight that. But nevertheless, uh, if the information commissioner and the tribunal believe that releasing the information is in the public interest, that's what it comes down to, vague, but nevertheless, that's the criterion. If it's overall in the public interest, then information about the honours could be released, yes. Now, the, those who listen to this uh, podcast, the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, some of us call ourselves, uh, <laughs> do have great curiosity. I can tell you from the emails I get. And, so they're probably putting in all their FOI requests well, right but, now. But that, well, that's, <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. Uh, now, you've written this book partly, as, as say, you call it a kind of manual, a guide. It is much more than that. It's like the narrative around all these things that we're talking about and exploring the themes. But, you know, you did it with the resources of the BBC. You were on a salary. I mean, is it hugely daunting for an individual to do this? You say, you know, if you go through the cabinet office, they'll say no a thousand times. Uh, I, I know you offer a guide to where you go and the, the limits and the opportunities. But do many individuals do it? Yeah, so uh, I think focusing on this kind of cabinet office example is not necessarily representative of FOI as a whole. Sure. And a lot of FOI requests are people putting in requests, say, to their local council or to their police force or fire service, ambulance, all these other public services that are also covered by FOI. A lot of FOIs are very, requests are very simple and you get the information straight away and there's nothing complicated about it at all. So this kind of cabinet office example is a bit unrepresentative. Uh, so it's perfectly possible to make simple FOI requests, uh, and millions and millions of people have made an FOI request. Uh, that's clear from the statistics that we have. But on the other hand, what I'd say is if you're encountering difficulties, if you're encountering a public authority that doesn't want to release the information, and that does often happen, then the process is much less daunting of trying to fight that if you've got my book <laughs> or, you know, I've got advice about what the best way is in order to challenge uh, public authorities who are being recalcitrant yeah. Uh, yeah. on the occasions that that happens. Yeah. We definitely all need your book because one of the themes of conversations, isn't it, is, you know, the, the British government is often very closed, but there are routes to open it up and you've got the lot really, in the book, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> but but the interesting thing is, uh, going back to the whole politics of freedom of information, um, I hadn't realised uh, that Gordon Brown was going to widen it when he became Prime Minister as part of his constitutional programme, but it never got anywhere. 
Well, no, it did actually some of it because he one thing that he did introduce was um, he reduced what had previously been the 30-year rule for records that have been sent to the National Archives yeah. that you get access to records uh, 30 years after they were current. That was reduced to 20 years. Gradually, that came in as a result of what happened under Gordon Brown. So Brown did extend uh, openness and transparency. And also when he came in, he did row back on some of the plan changes that Blair had been planning to introduce to make FOI a bit more difficult administratively. Uh, really to make it easier for people to reject requests on grounds of cost. Um, that was all going through under Blair in the towards the end of his premiership, and Brown, when he came in, dropped all that. So I think Brown is the prime minister, actually, who did promote FOI. Blair, we know, um, fell out of favour with it and wasn't at all happy. Cameron later also was very rude about FOI. But uh, Brown, from the point of view, FOI was definitely a positive force. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, now, because we could be on the edge of another change of government. And yes. there are similar patterns, aren't there, to the build-up to the new Labour uh, 97 election. I'm not, not talking about the result, but the focus on constitutional reform, the fear of talking too much about public spending. Um, in Starmer's case, devolution in England or whatever. Um, but uh, Sue Gray was one of the great blockers of information, wasn't she, as a senior civil servant who, if it all goes to plan, is about to become chief of staff for Keir Starmer. Yes, exactly. So uh, there's a very interesting question. What will the attitude of a, a Labour government be to FOI? Um, and I think there are different things which point in different directions. In terms of Sue Gray, uh, it's true that when she was in Whitehall, she had a reputation for being very much a resistor of openness and transparency and a turner down of FOI requests. Um, there was an article written uh, on the BBC website still there by a guy called Chris Cook, who was at the time one of my BBC colleagues, now is at the Financial Times, uh, describes, uh, I think, as something like perhaps the most secretive civil servant you could ever hope to meet. <laughs> um, and that, so that's a pretty high bar <laughs> <laughs> to be describing her in those terms. Yes. So uh, assuming she's chief of staff in a Starmer government, that doesn't uh, bode well for transparency. And also, I think... I mean, Starmer hasn't really made much of an issue of transparency or extending FOI in terms of his critique of the Tory government. It doesn't, I think, fit with his strategy of security and the, the, the sort of voters that he's trying to win back from Boris Johnson. He doesn't seem to think it's a big plus as far as they're concerned. Whereas if you look in Scotland, it's actually the case that the Labour leader there, Anna Sawa, um, actually does criticise the SNP government in Scotland a lot over their FOI record and uh, uses, in fact, FOI requests, outcomes of FOI requests to do it. So uh, Sawa makes a big deal out of FOI in a way which Starmer uh, hasn't been making. And yet you're pretty convinced, aren't you, that it's here to stay for all the prime ministerial critics it's had. Um, once you do something like this, you don't think it's going to be reversed. Absolutely. And I think the experience of Blair trying to reverse it a bit and also 
Um, you know, similar things have happened in other countries. It's a really bad look to try and reverse FOI because you come across as promoting secrecy. So that's very bad in terms of public relations. It also really annoys the media if you try and reverse it. Uh, and, you know, even newspapers that might be sympathetic to whichever side of the political fence you're on will turn against you if you try to reverse FOI. So I think trying to get rid of it in legislative terms won't happen. However, the government does have what you might call administrative measures, um, being delaying, being obstructive. Uh, for some time, certain ministers, uh, Michael Gove famously, for example, uh, used private email accounts, which it was... Is that sort of allowed in inverted commas? Because government business is supposedly meant to be conducted uh, on non-personal emails, isn't it? And wasn't that why Suella Braverman got into trouble when she used a personal email to contact somebody, another MP, to seek advice? And Yeah, are these recognised as impractical to completely stop people using personal email accounts or WhatsApp messages on their phones. Uh, you know, in the modern day, people are going to use that as a method of communication. What you should do is copy uh, important messages, significant messages to your official communication channels. So if you're a minister, in other words, to your private office, something like that. So it's also put into the government system. And, and all of that, in theory, can be accessed through freedom of information. Absolutely. And even if that doesn't happen, theoretically, if, if it's just in your private email, that if it's done on government business, the law is clear, if it's on government business, that's still theoretically subject to FOI. In practice, however, it's obviously much more difficult for requesters to get information that is only on someone's phone particularly if that person is being difficult about releasing it. Uh, well, the book is absolutely fascinating, and we've only just scratched the surface. As I say, it's a great read. It's not just a manual. It, it, it conjures up this whole period and the many themes, some of which we've been able to explore. But Martin, while you're here, we're all political addicts on this podcast, and um, Martin uh, edited a whole range of programmes from that silly, tiddly little podcast Nick Robinson does called, what's it called? Political Thinking. You know, <laughs> none of you need worry about it. But it, a long interviews with uh, politicians. Anyway, it, it's meaningless. Um, and Radio 4 series, we did one on Gordon Brown. Very soon after his fall from power, we did one, and I think interviewed all the people around that dramatic government and its fall. Um, but you yeah. did you did thousands. Um, do you look back and, and what gave you greatest fulfilment in retrospect or you found most interesting and revealing as you went about these various epic BBC series that you instigated or were involved in? <laughs> um, well, funny enough, you have mentioned a couple there already that I did feel were particularly good. I thought... I've got to say, I thought the series we worked together on the Brown years um, was very good. But um, I think really, actually, it was people who were Brown supporters actually revealing the truth of what it was like to work in a Brown government. It wasn't his critics. It wasn't the Blairites. It was actually the, the Brownites themselves um, talking about and it. And very soon yeah. afterwards. Very soon afterwards. And I think, you know, that would really stand the test of time. 
um, the, the the sort of piddly little political thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you refer to, um, I think is also something that um, I've you know I feel there's a different style of interviewing that I'm very glad we managed to develop, and I think it shows that there's value really in all sorts of different ways of interviewing politicians. Yeah, and I mean, you know, speaking more generally, I've always taken the view that in terms of political kind of coverage, you need a range of approaches and you just have some programs that are aggressive and confrontational and really hold politicians to task. You should have other programs which are more discursive and reflective, analytical, um, and really do try and give people the space to, to talk in their own way about things. There's room for a wide variety of different forms of political coverage, uh, and you can't expect everything to be the same. Yeah, and you started uh, with the BBC with the Week in Westminster, didn't you? you produced Week that. in Westminster, and I, again, I was, you know, you presented that a uh, number of times, Steve. Absolutely, um, and the Week in Westminster was another show on which we tried, uh, I think, very often successfully to be reflective yes. and conversational, yeah. to avoid the normal party political dogfight, uh, the point scoring. We weren't interested in that kind of thing. We were interested in giving people some space and getting them to talk about what they personally believed about the issues of the week uh, and approaching it in an analytical way. I was quite surprised when you told me you were leaving because, so just set the scene, Martin worked in Four Millbank at Westminster, right at the heart of the media kind of set up in... Westminster. Um, and it's quite sort of all-absorbing, isn't it? But uh, do you miss it, uh, you know, with all the dramas erupting around us on, on a near daily basis at the moment? Certainly on some days I miss it. There are some days where I think, oh, wouldn't it be great to be in the building and we should be doing this, we could be doing that. It'd be really interesting to hear from X now, or uh, that would be a really good question to put to Y. Let's explore that. Um, so, Sometimes I definitely do miss it, but I don't regret overall having left at all. I don't regret taking that decision. But it, you know, it was fascinating work to do. It'd be weird not to regret it at all, and I certainly do regret it sometimes. But I think the thing that I'd add to that, Stephen, I think this is perhaps true for quite a few people, one way or another. Uh, it was partly the effect of lockdown in that. Um, in my last year at the BBC of employment, I only went into the office for Millbank, as you talk about, four times. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and, you know, we were making the programmes from home. Do you remember uh, you and I interviewed Tony Blair? I was certainly in my bedroom. We were doing a programme about the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah I remember. And, yeah, uh, yeah, It was about nine o'clock in the morning. I, I don't think he, I think it might have been in his bedroom as well. I mean, it, it, it was that <laughs> surreal height of lockdown period, wasn't it? Absolutely. And for that very, that same series, I can remember the interviewing Ed Balls. And there was some big technical problem. And normally when that happens, you're interviewing someone, a big figure like Ed Balls, and you've got a technical problem and it's delaying everything. You kind of panic a bit as a producer because you're worried, you know, how much time have they got and we're losing time from the interview. And I can remember saying to him, I'm really sorry about this. We're trying to do things in a different way. We're going to sort it out. We'll be able to do the interview. And he just said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, lockdown, I, I'm not going anywhere. I've got nothing else to do. I'll just sit and wait. <laughs> yeah, lockdown, lockdown. Um, and, yeah. So yeah, working so, from home and all that period, and you thought, well, right, 
might as well carry on. Well, he, he was a kind of halfway house in a way, I think, a halfway house to doing something different. Yeah. Well, you've so, written a major work since leaving the BBC, uh, Freedom of Information, a practical guidebook, um, is terrific. And us lot should all have it because we're so curious and we need to know how to use this uh, system. Martin, thanks very much for coming in and joining us. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you all for listening. We need to get back together again very soon to make sense of it all. There are all kinds of strange things going on. Um, So let's do that. In the meantime, have a good time. Bye. Bye.